Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with author of Ultimate MMA Conditioning, Joel Jameson. So this episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is also sponsored by Valt Performance, creators of the Nordboard. So if you haven't heard of the Nordboard already, don't worry, I'll explain, it's really, really simple. The Nordboard is a really fast and accurate system for monitoring hamstring strength. So as practitioners, we can do very little about athlete age and previous hamstring injury, but what we can do something about is our athlete's eccentric strength, and that's where the Nordboard fits in really nicely. It isn't going to get your athlete's hamstrings bulletproof, but what it is going to do is give you the right information so you can make the right decisions at the right time. If you do want any more information, you can go over to valdperformance, that's V-A-L-D performance.com, or email info at valdperformance.com. So welcome to episode 63 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we've got Joel Jameson, who... I'm really, really excited to speak to because I read his book, uh, like I say in the episode, uh, quite a while ago. So big thanks to Rami at Train With Push for connecting me with uh, with Joel. Another added to the list of guys from Seattle, so uh, definitely chalk that one up. Um, so in this episode, we talk about the book itself, Ultimate MMA Conditioning. So I'd encourage anyone out there who hasn't read it to read it. Um, it, it defines um, the kind of conditioning um, in a really clear and concise way. Uh, it's a great read uh, and you'll definitely, no matter what sport you're in, whether it's MMA or it's a, a team sport or an individual sport, you'll definitely gain a lot from, from Joel's insights and Joel's research. So just before we get on to the chat with Joel, I just want to, again, make a big thanks to, to Rami and the guys at Train With Push. So one thing that's new with the push band, um, which they've been uh, very keen to develop over the last couple of months, is the the testing protocols. So I think that was that was in originally, um, but that's been massively developed, uh, like I say, over the last couple of months, with um, one rep max tests for back squat, bench, and deadlift, as well as more power uh, associated tests with counter movement jump, jump squat vertical jump and more impressively uh, drop jump and RSI stiffness so again like I mentioned in the last episode we're coming to Christmas so great little present for yourself to get a push band so get over to trainwithpush.com and you can you can get a push band there so thanks again to all the guys that tuned in for the Ian McKeough webinar over the last couple of weeks um, had some really great feedback so keep an eye out for the next one which will be in mid-January. So I hope you enjoy the chat with Joel. Let me know what you think. Drop me an email, uh, shout me out on Twitter and just let me know what you think of this episode with Joel. So we're at 63 and enjoy. Okay, hi guys. Welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. So today, really excited to get Joel Jameson on the phone. So read Joel's book probably about 18 months ago, two years ago now, 
So really excited to get him on um, to discuss all about uh, the book, Ultimate MMA Conditioning, uh, and a few other things. So just before we get going, just want to welcome Joel to the podcast and uh, give him a massive thanks for giving up his time on a on a Wednesday afternoon. So thanks a lot, Joel. Uh, so, no problem. Happy to be here. So do you want to give us a, a little bit of an introduction on yourself, uh, your background, and what you're currently doing? Yeah, sure. You know, I originally started out in the strength conditioning field working with American football and that was kind of where I saw my career going and then things happen sometimes different than you expect and I, I opened a gym back in 2003 that happened to be uh, next to an MMA gym and so I was quickly forced to figure out how to train these MMA fighters and that's kind of where my whole journey into conditioning began because I quickly realized especially once I started training with them myself that the conditioning ideas I had that you know we utilized with football were 180 degrees and totally different from what the MMA fighter needed and there was a whole different world between you know a five minute round and a six second football play and so I had to you know I had these guys going out and fighting for big money and, and big audiences I worked with guys back in Japan mostly back then um, I had to figure out you know how how it all worked what conditioning really was and how it varied from sport to sport and goal to goal um, so I spent about 10 years you know maybe 12 years training you know really high level fighters and working with combat athletes um, in 2009 I basically saw there was a big uh, gap in the market and people had some some really poor ideas of how to condition fighters and it was starting to become a really popular sport. So I said, I'm going to write a book and you know, I really didn't know how well it was going to do or what the response was going to be. But uh, you know, sure enough, I ended up selling a good amount of them and people from all over the place started emailing me and uh, just kind of went from there. So the last uh, you know, two, three years, I've been spending some time coaching, spending some time traveling and doing seminars, spending some time working on the next book. Um, developed some technology called BioForce HRV to help measure and monitor fatigue and train readiness. So I really just do a lot of different things at this point, to be honest with you. It's, it uh, keeps me busy, but it's always interesting and, and fun to work with different people in different, different capacities. Cool. So next book is going to be out when? You know, I'm hoping to get the Ultimate MMA Conditioning 2 out probably in the springtime of uh, 2016. So I'm um, hoping sometime, you know, late spring. Cool. So how will that differ from the first book? What will it add? Um, you know, it'll, it'll add a lot, honestly. I mean, since I wrote that book in 2009, I've spent a lot of time studying, um, you know, a bunch of other elements outside of energy systems, which was really the focus of, of the first book. And uh, really, you know, energy systems are an important component of it, but the more you've, more I've researched, at least, the more I've seen how much uh, other components play a huge role in conditioning as well. So everything from the brain and how the brain perceives the work and the environment to, you know, different supporting areas of the body outside energy. I mean, there's a broader picture to conditioning that I want to paint, and that's really going to be the focus of the next one. So you paint a you paint a picture at the start of like you've just done there with regards to the um, your kind of influence around why the book was written in the first place. But who are the, who are your main who are the main guys that influenced you in the build up to writing that book? Um, to be honest with you, there really wasn't that many. I, I had to do a lot of this research kind of on my own because okay. it really was very little written on MMA fighters and there was very little written that I thought was very good on conditioning. So, you know, a lot of it, I extrapolated, I, I looked at different endurance, um, athlete type papers. I looked at some different research and energy systems, different areas. I looked at, uh, talked to a few coaches that have been working with MMA athletes, but really there was hardly any, I mean, to be honest with you, it was, it was mostly just my own exploration that led to the book and that where I got a lot of the stuff from there really wasn't, uh, you know, despite the fact that the sport was gaining popularity, there really wasn't that many people writing on the subject, and there really was very little literature, you know, on how to train these guys. So it was, it was really just a lot of my own work, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. So, from from your experience, 
obviously seeing coaches um, dealing with these these athletes. Are they just, you know, it's it's just ingraining the culture, the kind of things they're doing? Is it kind of this is what we've always done type of situation? Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of that. Um, and really, as the sports have evolved, you know, you've seen the importance of developing a well-rounded fighter. So you, you have to be good in the ground game. You have to be good in the stand-up game. You have to be good in the wrestling game. You have to be good, you know, in all these different areas. And uh, the problem with that is you have a lot of different coaches teaching a lot of different things. And there's the biggest problem I see in the sport now is is maybe people want to have a smarter approach, but they really don't have – they don't know how to do it because they have five different coaches training them. And a lot of times, you know, a lot of these pro fighters are going to two or three different gyms in the same week, and none of those coaches have any idea what the other one's doing. It's all just kind of a free-for-all. So, you know, I think we're still early in terms of the uh, sport itself, and there's there's still a lot of people out there that – um, are succeeding despite their program because of them, but hopefully that'll start to change them. I think that the rash of massive injuries in the UFC in the last couple of years where you've had, you know, how many countless cars or main events decimated because of, of injuries, I think they're starting to realize that you've got to have a smarter approach. You can't just go in the gym and, and kill yourself day in, day out and expect it to, to work for the long run. And so I think we're starting to see some changes, um, you know, how long it'll take before we, we fix a lot of the problems in the sport, who knows. So you mentioned uh, eight weeks out. Do you just want to talk to us about what, what that is? Yeah, so that was kind of the first uh, the first site I created. And I created around just the idea of getting information out there about how to train combat athletes. So on the site now, we've got uh, probably a couple hundred articles, videos, community forum, you know, some, some free programs on there for people. It's just a, you know, it's a resource is the way I would define it for people that are looking to improve their conditioning, improve their training, and, and get some insight into kind of how I approached strength conditioning for the last you know, 12, 15 years in the sport. So again, you mentioned previously about, um, about HIV and Bioforce. We had, we had a, a guy on um, Marco Altini who was doing his, his PhD um, in HIV, um, just do a little couple of little segments over the last couple of weeks in the podcast. And he kind of went into the, the, the kind of basics of, of HIV and how he'd use it and how he'd actually apply it. Do you just want to yeah, talk to us about his stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, really nice guy. Um, so do you want to just tell us about how you came to value HRV and how you use sure. it with the, the guys that uh, that you work with? Yeah, you know, um, I've actually been using HRV probably as long as almost anyone, at least in the U.S., is concerned. I, I first heard about it from a, a track coach named Randy Huntington back in uh, 2001 or 2002, I want to say. So, you know, 15 years ago, I, I heard about it, was exposed to it, and I ended up getting the, a system called the Omega Wave back then, which was an early HRV system that allowed you to, to measure the HRV of, of your athletes. And I really hadn't heard of it before. I didn't know really what the technology did, but as soon as I started using it, I saw the value because it was giving me, you know, insight into how much fatigue the athletes or clients I was working with were under, what their training readiness was, how they were adapting my programs, how things like sleep and nutrition you know, just give this huge window into what was actually happening inside their body. And once I started using it, you know, I inherently realized like, wow, I don't, I don't understand how people train without this. Because once you have the information and you're able to to see what's going on, you can make adjustments so much more quickly. And you don't have to wait until someone's plateauing or overtraining or injured before you realize, that, hey, their program's not going in the correct direction. So 2011 with basically the the cell phones starting to take over and have you know decent level of technology in them when it was possible to to create a mobile version so i created uh, bioforce hrv back then like late 2011 and and been building it ever since and the 
the biggest thing is there's there's you know lots of different ways you can, can use it and apply it. Um, the two broadest things I would say we do is number one, there's there's a lot of research out there that shows that um, different parasympathetic function is reflected in HRV is appropriate or ideal for different goals. So somebody who's an endurance athlete is going to have a different optimal range of HRV than in a combat athlete who will have a different range than say uh, a soccer player, football player, you know, which is different from someone who's just trying to work out. So, you know, really the, the first thing is making sure that the people you're working with are in the normal ranges that they should be for that particular goal. And if they're way higher or way lower, the chance of them reaching that goal are, are much less and the difficulty they'll find to get there being much higher. So number one is just making sure people are in the right HIV range and that comes down to a lot of different things. Uh, and then number two, uh, we use it to manage programs based on fatigue and what we call training readiness. So as you train in fatigue, you know, we want to see how much the body is stressed, the body is under, and make changes to the program as we go along so that we can you know, get, find the effective, most effective path for each individual person. So you know, just for example, BioForce gives you a green, amber, and red uh, system based on kind of where you are each day in, in relation to your average. If you're green, it basically means the body is you know, under a fairly low level of stress and is prepared for high-level training. You know, if it's amber, it means it's a bit reduced, so we'd cut back the volume, you know, something like 20%, maybe 30%, reduce the high intensity a bit. And if it's red, it means you're real fatigued, in which case we usually would do an active recovery or some sort of day or, or just a day off. Um, so, you know, in general, we like I said, we make sure that people are in the range they need to be in and they're able to support, their body is able to support essentially the training towards their goal that uh, needs to happen if they're going to get there. And then number two, we just use it to manage things as we, as we work through the process. Mm-hmm. So your guys are doing this every every morning? Yeah, I mean, the more data you get on HIV, the better, because again, it's, I think the biggest thing that we can see from HIV is really the trend. It's it's how the body is changing dynamically, because that tells us a whole lot about how the body is responding to everything that's happening to it. So the more data points you can get, you know, the better. And ideally, you, you get every morning, it's a two and a half, three minute test, and then you're done. And once you get in the habit of doing it, you know, it's 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 not like it takes an hour. It's a quick, easy, non-invasive thing. So the, the, the idea is definitely to do it every morning. So how how does it how does it fit in um, around your other kind of readiness measures? Are you doing any of the readiness measures? Or are you taking just um, HIV? Uh, for the most part, I mean we'll take HIV, but there's a lot of it comes down to uh, coaching, paying attention to what they're looking like, trying to gauge their sleep levels, um, talking to them. I mean, there's there's you know it's readiness is a dynamic picture, right? It's not just a single variable. I mean, HIV is the best variable we do have. You know, but if you, you want to look at how your athletes are actually performing and training, you want to look at the trends, you know, of their numbers leading up to that day. I mean, all these things will paint, you know, more or less the same picture. You just have to be paying attention to it. And then we we'll use, you know, things like work rate and heart rate during the training session, heart rate recovery, all those things will give you really good indicators of, you know, how fatigued somebody is as well. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I just want to move on to, um, on to MMA conditioning um, itself, the book. Um, you mentioned kind of what I call kind of classifications of conditioning in the book. Do you just want to kind of run us through, um, obviously not as much detail because there's quite a number of pages on it, but um, just run us through the kind of your classifications and, and how you would work through that model. Um, classifications in terms of what in terms of, in terms of conditioning. So you you kind of starting off with your kind of cardiac output and then moving through the. Oh, okay. Yeah. Methodology you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think you know, like so there's there's a lot of different methods of lifts in the book. I think the biggest thing to understand is that methods are what make the program. Um, I think people inherently have this idea that it's it's exercises that drive the program, but really it comes down to what are you trying to 
accomplished inside the human body that's you know going to lead to improved conditioning. Um, so I think the biggest thing is that you have to start by an understanding that you need a range of intensities typically for most programs. I mean, somebody who's a purely anaerobic athlete, you know, weightlifter, powerlifter, shot putter, you know, clearly they need massive amounts of anaerobic work and, and very little, you know, just enough aerobic work to recover and, and stay healthy. You know, somebody that opted in the spectrum and endurance athlete needs huge volumes of lower intensity work with about 20% high intensity work, you know, over the course of you to improve. And everybody else, you got to find kind of that sweet spot of, you know, how much higher intensity work do we do? How much lower intensity work do we do? And then how do we structure that work? And the biggest thing is, is starting with the methods because each method, you know, is going to have a different level of stress, a different level of overall training load on the body, and it's going to accomplish different things. So um, I tend to separate from an aerobic standpoint leaks, um, kind of these central cardiovascular type adaptations, which improve the cardiovascular system's ability to pump and deliver oxygen and function well um, from the muscular adaptations themselves, which is where the muscles change to be more efficient at utilizing energy or more effective at uh, you know, drawing the oxygen out and, and turning it into ATP. So again, all the methods are going to incorporate both those. You can't separate them entirely, but I tend to look at local muscular endurance and, and peripheral um, adaptations as one aspect and then the central as another. Um, and then basically just uh, have a list of the methods in there that you can work through depending on where you find the weaknesses and, and go from there. But again, it, it really just comes down to understanding what, are your, what is you're trying to achieve. You know, does the person have a good cardiovascular system, but their local muscular endurance is suffering and, and weak as it needs to be? You know, do they have actually fairly well-conditioned muscular system, but their cardiovascular system is uh, a bit lacking? You know, are there connective tissue issues? You know, what does their motor control look like? It's really a, a, a big picture of stuff you kind of have to look at as a whole to figure out what are the most appropriate methods. And the biggest thing, you know, that I would stress is that you have to use both higher and lower intensity methods over the course of a program, over the course of a year to see long-term gains and the biggest thing I see people doing is overusing high intensity with no lower intensity work and ultimately you can't do that forever before you'll you'll plateau and, and a lot of times get injured because you just you can't progress that you have to have a mixture of both in there mm -hmm. yeah kind of come into the um you come into the what, what I was gonna ask next was just from my experience in in football in soccer probably 20 30 years ago in kind of pre-season pre-season period you see a lot of long slow runs now it's maybe more the other end so they get the sick bucket out we're going to make these guys puke but what is the what is the value of doing that um going back to doing what maybe not the totally long slow runs but that aerobic base work from your experience well, I mean, I think you have to, you know, like, say the, the industry in general tends to be like a pendulum, right? It swings one direction or the other. As soon as people start to realize, hey, there's there's downsides to running massive volumes for an athlete that's, you know, a, a field sport athlete or team sport athlete, they they cut it out entirely and they go, you know, completely the other direction and they want nothing but sprints, intervals all the time. And the biggest thing is simply your body can't handle high intensity over and over and over again. Eventually, you're going to plateau, and eventually, if you keep pushing, you're going to overtrain. You're going to you're going to get injured. I mean, there's, uh, you know, I, I don't think we've seen any sort of decrease in injuries over the last few years that this high intensity stuff has really kind of taken over. And if anything, we've seen an increase in injuries. So, uh, really, the benefits are, are simply they they activate different pathways that that develop different areas of the cardiovascular system. You don't see all the same things happen from high intensity as you do from low intensity. And the second thing, you know, is simply that you can do it more frequently and recover from it. And it supports recovery itself from the higher intensity work so you know even if you, even if you want to consider the value only being high intensity which i would say it's it's not 
you know, just the fact that you get some lower intensity work and that drives recovery because aerobic processes are what drive recovery and it helps your body get back to the point where it can train with the high intensity again. So I think if you look at, you know, as far back as even guys like, uh, you know, Charlie Francis that was, was doing the, the high low program he created, I mean, the, the two, three days a week, he was doing low intensity, relatively low intensity tempo runs with sprinters in the fast athletes of the world. If you look at, uh, you know, Dan Paff and all these guys that work with very, very explosive athletes, they still incorporate, you know, lower intensity movements and lower intensity training into their programs, you know, because again, you can't train six days a week at the highest intensities. You'll, you'll kill yourself. So what are you going to do in the, in the, in the off days, take it off completely? No, you need to be doing something. So you know, lower intensity work is really complement. Um, I would say to higher intensity work and develops different areas and has benefits that are unique to itself. Mm-hmm. Just, just going back to kind of my experience in working in football, in soccer, working with um, some some coaches that kind of had the had the opinion that this probably covers uh, many different sports. If the guys weren't puking and weren't kind of passing out at the end, it kind of wasn't good enough. How are you? I know that's kind of a really basic um, basic thing, but how are you kind of educating your the coaches that you've worked with in the past to? to bring them around to the thought that that doesn't have to be the case? Uh, you know, all I'll, the time. Like, I'm for, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm probably fortunate in the fact that a lot of times when coaches are seeking me out or talking to me, they're looking for guidance in the first place. And a lot of times I think you run, you run into the problem that the people that are successful don't want to change because they're successful, right? So if, if they've always run guys in the ground until they puked and they've had success with it, then they're not going to listen to somebody who says there's a different way to do these things. They're, they're typically, it takes some injuries or it takes some, some you know lack of success before they start to look at maybe what they're doing and, and decide to make changes. But the biggest thing is, you know, the, the biggest problem aside from you know just overworking guys to death is you're teaching inherently terrible motor programs when you're emphasizing that sort of work. And what I don't understand is coaches will go in there and they'll coach technique and they'll coach you know execution and they'll coach all these very you know uh, minor details of technique essentially when the athletes are performing at lower levels. But then as soon as they get into conditioning all semblance of technique and motor control and, you know, actually moving well goes completely out the window. And you're, you're essentially training the body at that point in time to move in that way when they're fatigued. So you're basically teaching the athletes to move poorly and to have terrible running technique or terrible form in their sport as soon as they're fatigued. And that's the total wrong emphasis. You want the body to be able to move as efficiently as it can, even when it's fatigued. You want to find the best path, the most effective uh, biomechanically uh, safe and effective path when it's fatigued. So when when what biggest thing I try to stress and help coaches understand now is when your athletes are fatigued and you're training them in a fatigued state during some sort of conditioning drill, the goal here is to maintain their technique, to maintain their form. It's not to make them go as fast as you possibly can until they throw up. You're just going to teach them sloppy motor patterns and sloppy movements. So if the if the coaches shift their mindset from getting the athletes to accomplish, uh, you know, well-executed movements and well-executed motor patterns during fatigue, rather than just trying to fatigue them as much as possible. You know, that shift in mindset, all of it, uh, you know, is, is usually enough for the light bulb to go off and say, Hey, I see, you know, I see what you're saying here because you know, obviously they don't want their athletes moving poorly. So why are you putting them in a position to inherently move poorly and not correcting them? Mm-hmm. So, so from a kind of a strength and conditioning point of view um, on your side of things, when them guys are fatigued, is it just a kind of eyeballing their technique, or are you are you assessing that in in a different way? Oh, I mean, it depends on what they're doing, but usually you want to have some basic coaching cues that help them maintain technique. So even if it's 
uh, even just postural, you know, you see people slumping over. And, and again, a lot of times it comes down to how you cue the task itself. If you're telling somebody go as fast as you possibly can, well, they're just going to turn their limbs over as fast as they can without any sort of, you know, technical regard to it. But if you give them context of keep your head up, you know, eyes forward, you know, some sort of postural cue with hands or feet or whatever, if you start giving them cues to maintain some semblance of decent technique while they're fatiguing, you're going to shift, you know, everything. And you don't have to be a running mechanics expert or you don't have to be a skill expert to to see these things happening, you know, when they're lifting weights or when they're running with you or when they're doing whatever type of conditioning drills you're doing. You still see postural issues. You still see mechanic issues that come out because they haven't been taught properly how to move during those fatigue states. So, uh, you know, we've had this huge emphasis in movement and technique in the last you know, however many years, and you have you have lots of um, you know strength coaches and personal trainers going to physical therapy courses and trying to do all this functional movement stuff. And the funny thing is, most of it goes completely out the window when they train their athletes in conditioning. They completely forget about all of it, right? You, what's the point of developing good movement when they're you know in bodyweight exercises if their movement's terrible when they're fatigued because they're they're not doing bodyweight exercise in the real world. They are going to be in fatigue states. They are going to be in high velocity uh, states. So you really have to train movement in those areas, not just during a warm up. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I just want to take it back to the um, to, to ask you about uh, periodizing conditioning for fighters. So we've had a, we've had a couple of guys on um, who have worked in well, one guy specifically in uh, mixed martial arts, and then one guy um, more in, in boxing. But do you just want to talk to us about, especially the the kind of uh, the eight weeks out, uh, the the kind of key time building up to a building up to a big fight? Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely different than your traditional sports model because there's no clear delineated here here's the offseason here's the preseason here's the in-season i mean everything is very predictable and constantly changing in, in mma you might have uh no fight coming up and all of a sudden you've got six weeks till a fight or you know you, you might sit there for four months and have nothing going on or longer it just really depends on the situation of the fighter so you know really we just divide everything into two seasons or two kind of halves i guess you could call it one is just you know, an out of fight training and, and the other one would be a fight training camp. So if you've got no fights coming up, you know, your goal is to improve some particular area of your your MMA skill or your, your combat skill, then all your training is focused around improving those areas. And if endurance is the issue, then you work on that area. If strength and power is your issue, you work on that area and that complements whatever you're doing from a skill perspective as well. Now during the fight camp, you know, we typically like to have, you know, at least a six or an eight week window leading up to it. Um, because really that's what it takes to to optimally prepare the body for the demands of the fight. And really what it comes down to is, you know, the closer you get to the fight, the more specific everything needs to become to the fight itself from, you know, the opponent mimicking in your, in your training what you expect your opponent to do uh, to the types of movements and conditioning drills you're doing to, you know, even the time of day that you're training. You, uh, you really want to prepare the body for the totality of the environment of the fight. So we do, like I said, we do everything from making sure the, training partners are simulating what we expect the opponent to do in the fight, you know, watching film with the opponent and visualizing what the opponent's going to look like. You know, uh, the guy working Matt Hume will have them running through all these very specific drills and counter, you know, countering sort of movements to, to, uh, you know, win the fight based on whatever game plan is put together. You know, all the rounds start becoming much more specific to what the rounds are going to be in a fight, you know, whether it's three fives or five fives, or 60 second rest, you, know, you move towards that pacing. And again, the whole progression of, the fight camp is moving closer and closer and closer to what the fight's supposed to look like. Because the more you've seen something, the more you've experienced something, the better off you're going to be at maintaining your energy production, the better off you're going to be able to perform. And it's really when you get completely outside of that and away from what your brain expects to happen that you completely fall apart. And there was 
great example of that the other you know night with with Rousey and and home you could tell real quickly Rousey looked totally out of element when she couldn't get the arm bar and her game plan went out the window and you know she didn't adjust to it and, and obviously got knocked out of the result so you know everything we're doing in the fight camp is preparing the athlete for what we expect to happen in the fight and being as specific to it in that regard as we can mm-hmm. one one and uh, one thing i'm interested in Joel is in the kind of non fight prep um zone of the year if if someone's kind of um focus is is more strength and power how are you complementing that with the conditioning side of things is that if if, if that's the focus have you got a specific remit to like i say to complement it yeah you know a lot of it uh you know let's say someone needs to work on their strength and their most empowered uh, rich franklin was a good example of that he was moving up to 205 when he came out here with us and fought his whole career more or less at 185 or a majority of it and compared to 205s you know he needed to gain some strength and power so you know it starts with do they have decent general you know central nervous system strength and the core lifts that's going to help provide some foundation for some of the specific movements and then a lot of it because you know mma is such a dynamic sport with with unusual movements a lot of it comes down to uh, medicine ball throws and partner type assisted drills and ballistic jumps and bounds but you know, you got you to do a lot of rotational, explosive rotational type movements and, and really, you know, med balls and throws really tend to be the, the most uh, effective way to rec- recreate some of those movements in the in the gym. And then at the same time when they're in the MMA gym, you know, it's, it's focusing on the technique and the power aspect of, of mechanics and, and making sure that the, the whole program is put together essentially. And, um, you know, when, when DJ was training for, who uh, was it, um, uh, the second fight with... Um, I'm blanking on his name, uh, Joseph Benavides. You know, everyone talked about Benavides' knockout power, and one of the things Matt wanted to emphasize in that in that camp was, or that lead-up in between fights at least, was, you know, DJ's knockout power and, and being able to sit down on punches and, and have, you know, have that potential knock somebody out. And so everything was revolved around that. You know, like I said, everything was explosive throws, plyos, bounds, you know, everything was an emphasis on that sort of technique in the MMA gym. And you came out and saw DJ knockout Benavides, who probably no one would have, ever expected that so it's it's just a matter of putting the whole thing together you can't have your strength conditioning program doing one thing and your MMA program doing something else that's where you get you know that's where you see problems that's really when you put both sides of it together you know, you're, you're going to get the results you're looking for mm-hmm. so just regards to how that the kind of periodizing conditioning differs with with team sport athletes who do have that kind of traditional off-season pre-season in-season so is it is it going to f- follow a similar model with regards to the closer you get to the season, the more specific it's going to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you if you just look at kind of the general concept, you know, the further out from the season you are, the more you're working on limiting factors and weak points. So, if, you know, one particular um, area of movement or one particular thing you're not good at is is where you should be focusing on when you're you know not getting ready for a competition. And the closest you are to the competition, the more specifically you need to be doing everything relative to the event itself and what you're training for. And then you just build that whole process up. So it's, I call it general to specific, you know, conditioning. So when you're don't have, you know, when you're an off season of a team sport, you know, you're working on general conditioning you're working on your strength and powers necessary for speed. You're correcting weak points and, and, you know, limiting areas of muscles and whatever else they might have that led to problems in the past. The closer you get, the more your movements become specific to the sport. So for example, uh, you know, early in the off season, you, your your running might consist of of a couple of days of doing some tempo runs, uh, you know, out in the out in the field for hundreds. 
you know, then you get, let's say four or five months out and now you start running shorter, high intensity, straight linear sprints. You know, now you get a couple months out, you start running more multi-directional, you know, more sports specific sprints that are relative, you know, work to rest ratios that are going to be happening in your sport. You just start gradually, the whole thing needs to progress towards more and more specificity towards the demands of the, you know, the sport environment itself. And that's really the kind of the same thing we see in MMA and really in it, the, the more you get, the more you get close to an event, the more everything as a whole needs to simulate and get close to what it is the competition is going to demand of you. Sorry to keep um, harping on about football and soccer. It's pretty boring for you. Uh, but if it, for, for, a spot like, for a spot like soccer with such a small preseason, how would you go about prioritizing that? I mean, say we've got six or seven weeks. How would you go about prioritizing that conditioning for that shorter period of time? Um, you know, it'd probably depend on where the guys came in. Honestly, I don't think I would, I would put an entire team of guys in different positions that come in with different fitness levels through the exact same six or seven week program because they're going to have different needs coming into it from different points of fitness and different weaknesses. Um, but in general, the, the problem or the, the challenging aspect of team sports is they have really long seasons, right? I mean, you know, relatively short season, then you're going to have a season for six months, seven months, or even more. So the challenge is, is keeping them healthy, you know, really through that. And the biggest thing I see is guys will come into training camp relatively out of shape. Sometimes they'll get hammered for six or seven weeks in training camp. And then they're wondering why their team is falling apart by the end of the season. You know, so I think you have to be careful in how you view training camp. Your training camp is the introductory part, you know, of the season. And you kind of have to treat it as such. You can't just go into training camp and run guys into the ground because a lot of times those guys never fully recover. And by the time the season's halfway through, you're getting, that's where you got your, you know, your guys injured and falling apart. So, uh, you know, again, again every, everything comes down to progression, I would say. So even if you only have six or seven weeks, you know, you, you don't start in week one with massive volume, and massive intensity. You have to gradually ramp it up each and every week so that the body is able to handle more and more training, more and more stress, and you're able to recover from that stress. So the biggest thing I, I emphasize in that sort of scenario is just each week increasing the volume, increasing the volume, increasing the volume, building the volume, building the intensity. You can't start out with it 100% week one. You have to have a, a progression of that over time, whether you've got four weeks, six weeks, or 10 weeks, you have to be progressing the, the overall volume of the program so that they're able to withstand more and more training as you go, not so they're you know beat to crap in, in week two and, and barely surviving in week six. Mm-hmm. Cool. Just a couple of last points. So that I, I know you're a busy guy, so I don't want to keep you uh, all afternoon. But just one thing um, is uh, MAS, so maximal aerobic speed. I just want to get your thoughts on on its use for for testing and then prescribing um, off the back of MAS. Is it something, um, yeah, is it something I mean, that you've used? I've, I've looked at it. I mean, I, I have tend to have my own kind of, uh, you know, methods and, and approach to things. I think there's value. I mean, basically what you do see is this concept of maximum aerobic speed is going to be, you know, ultimately what uh, an indicator at least of your ability to repeat something over and over again at a you know, high intensity because really the, the concept of the aerobic power reserve model, if you've seen that, um, shows us essentially that the more percentage of energy comes from our anaerobic side, the faster you're going to fatigue. So the more aerobic power you're generating, the more you're going to be able to repeat something over and over again. Um, you know, so I think for as a, as a testing tool, it provides some value. It gives you some information about where the athletes are at and what uh, they need to work on as far as the the protocols and kind of the specific um, you know details of, of of how it's laid out. I tend to do things you know in my own way, but I, I, there's definitely some value in that. And, and uh, you know the overall concept of it certainly sound. Mm-hmm. So when you say you, your own your own way of, of doing things, you just want to 
expand on that a little bit? Well, like I said, just the, the methods I use, the alactic intervals or lactic intervals or cardiac power. I mean, not, not everything has to fall into that, uh, that MAS sort of, um, you know, time work to rest ratio type, uh, you know, methodology that's, that's used as part of it. I tend to have a different range. I tend to have a different, uh, way of kind of spreading those volumes out. You know, I, d- I do tend to use the lower intensities and the tempo runs mixed in there as well. And, and just kind of structure things a little bit differently. But, uh, you know, again, it's, there's, there's value in it and it starts with, um, you know, this understanding that you have to have a high level of aerobic fitness to perform something over and over again. If, even if that something looks explosive, a lot of the energy still is coming from the aerobic side and you have to develop the ability to be explosive over and over again through, you know, a high level aerobic fitness, how exactly you, achieve that there's there's certainly different ways to go about it and uh, kind of the mas uh, model is, is certainly one of them and and uh, has, has you know has definitely good applicability to different sports mm-hmm. cool so just one last thing uh you're coming over to the to the uk in, a, uh, in the new year is that right yeah i'll be over there in dublin uh, i think it's february 27 28 and down in london uh, march 6th and 7th i want to say the following weekend and uh, i'll be doing two-day courses and really getting in depth with, with HRV, teach people exactly what it is, exactly how it works, and then plugging them into my team system, which basically allows you to use HRV with you know, an entire team of athletes or clients or whoever it is you're working with and see all their data in one centralized spot. So they take the measurement in the morning, they hit save their phone, the information goes to the web, and you have access to this portal where you essentially can manage and see everybody in your own in one place. And so I'm coming over there, getting some of the, the UK and Irish coaches plugging that system and, and getting them set up with how do we manage programs? How do we individualize things? Even though we're working with a large number of people, how do we evaluate different people's fitness levels and conditioning levels, you know, and just looking at how do we plug everything in and, and utilize the system I put together that, uh, you know, helps them use HRB in a large group setting. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's other um, systems out there. What, what makes, what's, how does BioForce differ from kind of iFleet or some another system like that? Apart, apart, apart from the, obviously the, the the system itself, the team system. Yeah, I mean the biggest thing is I've you know I've been coaching for a long time, and I really approach things from the perspective of what coaches and trainers you know and people are actually going to use. Um, you know, I'm not going to name any specific systems, but I think the the weakness we see kind of in the industry as a whole right now with fitness technology is a lot of these systems give lots and lots of data points with very little information about what to actually do with it because uh, the more data points you have, the more questions it raises rather than answers, I would say. So I really designed BioForce from a usability and ease of usability standpoint and something I knew that coaches would be able to actually understand, interpret, and apply because if you have to spend an hour a day trying to analyze the data, you're getting chances that you're not going to spend that hour and you're not going to do anything with it. And at that point, why, why even spend the time and money collecting it? So. Uh, the team version in particular, uh, it's extremely simple and easy to use. It, it gives you a single dashboard where you see all your athletes. It gives their HRV score for the day. It gives their average HRV score over time. Um, and it gives you a color, a green, amber, red, that really tells you kind of at a, at a quick glance where your team is at. So, you know, I designed it to be something that a coach could spend five minutes a day reviewing and get a lot of information out of it, not something that they have to spend, you know, an hour digging through spreadsheets and graphs to try and figure out. And, uh, you know, really, I think that's the – the advantage it has is, you know, I've spent so many years working with athletes and coaching myself that my perspective was different than a lot of these other systems that were designed, you know, by people um, that really didn't have the same coaching background I did. And you end up seeing these engineering type programs that are, like I said, you spend 
an hour trying to figure out what the data is actually saying before you can do anything with it. And I didn't want that to be the case. So, you know, again, the biggest thing people will find when they start using Bioforks and the team system is just simplicity and, uh, you know, very easy to use. Mm-hmm. Cool. So um, clients over in the in the States, uh, have you got kind of a lot of teams using it? Yeah, I mean, not just in the States. We've got really um, all over the world. We've got some rugby teams in Australia, New Zealand. We've got some soccer teams uh, in Europe, some soccer team in the U.S., uh, we've got NHL. We've got a couple of baseball teams, uh, wrestling team. I mean, really a pretty, pretty big variety. We've had a lot of special forces um, in the to the military purchase them. Um, pretty big variety, to be honest with you, across different different sports and different and different goals. And you know, it's it's one of those things that people have started to see coming. We're seeing more and more teams collect more and more data and trying to figure out what it all means. And I think we're going to kind of get to the point in the next few years where. The systems that work are still being used and these systems that don't work as well or that provide massive data no one knows what to do with are, are utilized less. And I think we're still kind of in that early stage where people are just collecting data for, just for the sake of collecting data. So you have teams that are collecting data with seven different systems and nothing's really changing as a result of it. So you know, sooner or later, I think we'll, we'll transition past that and people will start to have better strategies about what data they do collect and what data they don't collect and how they actually utilize the data that they that they get. Cool. So... Where can people book on and to the uh, onto the UK the UK massive UK tour? Um, so I'll have to send you a link. I believe uh, it'll be up uh, byforcehrv.com. There should be a main link off there, but I can send you a link to post to your yeah, uh, viewers yeah. if you want that has the the yeah, specific yeah. link to it. Um, but if you just search probably just search bioforcehrv, you know Ireland, it'll pop up. Or you go to bioforcehrv.com and we'll have it on there in the next couple of weeks. Cool. And where, where can people keep up to, date, up to date with what you've got on, Joel? Probably the best way is just eightweeksout.com. Um, you know, I've got all the articles, videos, newsletter, all that sort of stuff signed up on, on eight weeks out. Once you get on the, once you get on the newsletter list, uh, you know, you'll, we'll send an email updates about what's going on, where I'm going to be, and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, they can look, come to Facebook, the Facebook Eight Weeks Out group is another one. We post all our stuff on the Eight Weeks Out, and we've got 60-something thousand people on there now, so it's a good community of People talking about training, and, and I'm on there frequently as well. So either one is fine. Well, just um, thank you for your time. I really appreciate your, uh, your insight into the few bits of things that we've discussed, and I'll um, I'll let you go and get back to your afternoon. Yeah, no problem. Again, happy to be on, and uh, I'm sure I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, mate. Speak to you soon. Yep. All right, sounds good. Thanks. Bye, mate. Bye. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to episode 63 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Joel. Like I said before the episode, I'd love to hear your feedback on the episode and any other episodes that you've listened to over the last couple of months. So massive thanks to Train With Push and Vile Performance, uh, makers of the Nordboard, for sponsoring the episode today. So don't forget that the Nordboard uh, comes out in January. So get over to valdperformance.com and you can get more information there. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Joel and I will speak to you in episode 64.